week, California Governor Gavin Newsom begged residents in his state to avoid charging their EVs in an effort to keep the power grid from crashing during a heat wave. The irony is Newsom signed legislation a week earlier that would ban the sale of gas-powered cars by 2035. Our next guest, Joel Kotkin, writes in Newsweek that these electric car mandates are nothing less than a war on the working class, since the price of EVs will raise basic costs and give bargaining power to China, who produces most materials needed for EVs. Joel Kotkin joins us now to discuss further. Welcome, Joel. It's my pleasure to be here. So so walk us through the argument. I think, you know, we're used to thinking of the Democrats, the side of, you know, environmentalism as the side of the little guy, the working class. Walk us through the argument you're making here about why that's not the case. Well, I mean, the problem has been that the Democratic Party, particularly here in California, um, has adopted a, uh, a model, if you will, which is basically climate is the only thing really that matters. And the way we're going to deal with the negative economic side is we're just going to give people more and more uh, subsidies. I mean, uh, Newsom's now talking about giving $1,000 to anyone who doesn't have a car. Now, we know from research that having a car is one of the most effective steps, and this is from uh, more progressive organizations, to alleviating poverty. But what we essentially have now is a state that really only follows a particularly draconian climate policy, which hurts the middle and working class, but actually provides enormous opportunities for the very rich. I mean, it's not by happenstance that Elon Musk is now the world's richest man. Replacing the batteries for these vehicles could actually be more expensive than buying an EV itself, depending on the vehicle. According to one family in Florida, of, in Florida, a replacement for a 2014 Ford Focus electric racked up a bill of $25,000. Another social media user posted this image of their receipt from a battery change for their Chevrolet Volt, which ended up costing nearly $30,000. So I think the point is that, you know, these these are not at, at the current state of, uh, of innovation. You know, it's a great option for wealthy people, people who care about the environment. Sure, great. I, I think it's, good, you know, good technology and, and will continue to develop. But we're not at the stage where you can just like, oh, yeah, I'll just go get a Tesla, you know, when, when Democrats and Democratic policies um, say that, you know, that's just how you should deal with uh, with the energy uh, crisis, deal with everything going on. Yeah, just get an electric vehicle. But that's like that's still out of reach for a whole lot of working people. Well, it's not only out of reach, it's, it's terribly impractical for, for many people. Um, one of the real cha uh, challenges is going to be in the in the more industrial area, the people of the port of Los Angeles, they're saying all the trucks have to be electric. Um, well, they, they don't have big electric trucks and they may be virtually impossible to make. I mean, basically what we're doing is we're imposing a technology that's still developing and what would be much more sensible is to promote all sorts of low emission technologies, natural gas, cars, uh, hydrogen, um, uh, uh, hybrids. Um, uh, there are many, many ways of getting there. And I think what we've done is we're making an enormous mistake by focusing only on one technology um, that will essentially become even more expensive as the materials that you need to make them become more expensive. Um, um, and as you stress the electric uh, grid, there is no way California 
could absorb the the, the all the new EVs that that they're planning. Uh, there's just no way to do it given our current grid and given the fact that we've shut down almost all all but one nuclear power plant, which frankly is right now keeping Gavin Newsom um, uh, basically in office because by keeping that that nuclear power plant, we didn't we haven't had so far any major outages. How you add all that new demand without breaking the system um, is beyond me. So here's my question, Joel. You're not a right winger. You're actually a liberal. I'm coming at this from the left. I read your incredible book that everyone should read, The Coming Neo-Feudalism, with horror because it describes exactly what you're describing here, which is the process by which the left allowed itself to become the side of pushing for policies that hurt the working class, destroy the middle class, and benefit the elites. My question to you is, why? How did this happen? How come I can't read you in the New York Times? How come this insight, you know, why is it that the people who are on the left can't see what you see um, and, and, and are pushing this sort of thing? Well, I think part of the issue is that, uh, and, you know, I come from having been, at, you know, worked for the New York Times. I had a monthly column there for a while. I, I also had one in the Washington Post. Probably I couldn't get arrested at either right now. Um, and I think part of it is that there's been this merger of the upper classes uh, in the journalism world. You know, when I was, uh, uh, was working at the Washington Post many, many years ago, the guy sitting next to me was a working class Italian guy whose brother was a Baltimore cop. OK, I don't think you're going to see a lot of that in journalism today, particularly at the elite level. Um, so there's a disconnection between the middle and working class and the media. And a very important part of this is, is geographic. The media has become, oddly enough, more concentrated, particularly the big media, um, as the Internet has evolved. And so what you, what you see is that people who work in, in, that, in that media increasingly are a very small subset of Americans. They live in New York. They live in Washington. Some of them may uh, be in Silicon Valley or, or in L.A. But outside of that, the rest of the country might as well really not exist. And a large number of those people live in a place where you can take a subway to work, where you can walk to work. They're, you know, New York is a very exceptional environment. But it doesn't relate at all to how people live in Riverside, how they live in in Westchester County, New York, how they live in, in, in the suburbs of Chicago, not much less the countryside. So there's this total disconnect between sort of elite opinion and the vast majority. And as the, the major media has become more elite, it has lost touch with the values of, of people. I mean, sometimes you look at the LA Times, which I still occasionally write for, and you wonder if any of those writers have any have ever owned a house, raised a child, uh, ha had to drive to work. I, I think there's just this disconnect, and that disconnect is getting larger and larger as the um, as the not just the media but the bureaucracy um, and a large part of the corporate elite have diverged from what would be considered common sense by the vast majority. 
I take an electric scooter to work many days of the week, but I also <laughs> finally bought a car because for the for the convenience. But uh, you know, it, it would be insane for me to say like electric scooters are you know are the are the option for working people, for families, for people who don't you know live outside cities. Uh, take you forever to get anywhere. Uh, before we let you go, Joel, wanted to get your take. Uh, so here uh, you can see an electric bike bursting into flames while charging, and you can see the owner <laughs> scurries to get water to pour on the fire, which only causes it to create a bigger fire since water reacts violently with lithium and the fire worsens. Uh, you know, what do you make of that? Well, I think one of the problems that I've been hearing from engineers is the problem of, for instance, what happens if a car blows up in a tunnel? Um, I mean, there, there are, there are clearly this is an evolving technology in a advanced and enlightened capitalist system we would allow all sorts of technologies to compete. And ones that don't work like that, we, we reject. That's, that's how you get innovation. That's how you address problems like climate. You don't do it by taking a one-track draconian um, approach that is really great for you know to keep General Motors alive, but not so great for the American people. Well said, well said. Well, Joel, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. It's my, it's my pleasure. More rising right after this. A new report out from Axios shows some companies are dropping COVID vaccine mandates for employees. JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Cisco are among the companies that made this leap based on the notion that the virus seems to present less significant illness. The White House warned businesses last week of a potential COVID surge in the fall. But vaccine mandates were not on their list of suggestions to businesses on how to best protect their employees. Employers may be loosening their vaccine requirements, but they're not publicizing it. So this is very interesting. Uh, first of all, I'm I'm glad that these uh, these companies look. I mean, I think they should do whatever they want, but they can. I, I don't agree with the policy of, of vaccine mandates, particularly because, as we know, it's not really uh, tra uh, preventing transmission of COVID. It does. Uh, the vaccines do help people, especially people in at-risk categories, of having less severe bouts of illness if they do contract COVID. But the whole kind of well, you know, we're going to prevent mass outbreaks in different congregate settings doesn't really hold up. So I think it absolutely makes sense to um, to get rid of these policies, which are just, you know, kind of at this point sort of punishing the, the, the minority of people who haven't gone along with getting vaccinated for, for no legitimate public health uh, reason. So I'm, you know, I'm glad that they're doing it. Um, I think the most, you know, appetite, obviously, for the, the, the craziest thing was was when Biden just declared a national vaccine mandate for, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of, of workers, uh, you know, without Congress say, going through it. He just declared it. And that was obviously actually deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. And, and that and I'm, I'm glad they did that. So, so what, what do you think about this, Bacha? I want someone to acknowledge that they were wrong and other people were right. And now they are doing what the other people yeah. did from the beginning. I want an acknowledgement because how can you trust people who got something this wrong and now are simply acting like that never had just memory holding the mistake, 
gaslighting the American people and and doing what half of Americans have been doing all along and have known is correct all along. I, I just, I can't get past the gaslighting. I want them to acknowledge that firing people over this was wrong, mm-hmm. that if you're vaccinated, you can pass it on. All the stuff that they said that turned out not to be true, that there were people who were getting that right at the time, who were not sacrificing working class jobs to this wrong understanding of science, right? It's okay to get things wrong, but really it's okay only because in the future you will admit what how you got it wrong why you got it wrong and what you're going to do better next time in order to make sure you don't make the same mistake again and i i just so i i I, like you i'm glad to see them lifting this i'm glad to see that the correct interpretation which the right had all along is now being finally acknowledged by the left i'm glad to see polling that shows that the far left who are overrepresented in positions of power are finally less scared about COVID finally getting to the place where everybody else has been all this time. But I want an acknowledgement of how they got this so wrong and what they're going to do in future to make sure that they don't do it again. And so far, there's just nothing along those lines. And that some people are not going to trust what experts, the scientific consensus, et cetera, what it is because of all the mistakes with COVID, all the things that were that were promised, the whole idea that uh, that it, it was gonna it was gonna hold back cases as well like that that was such a that's turned out to be a very pernicious a uh, falsehood because now uh, and now I'll hear sometimes people will I think underplay the value of vaccines in, in preventing you know severe disease for older Americans I think it is still important it should be voluntary but it, it is important uh, to get vaccinated and to get boosted uh, you know if you're if you're very if you're very old or you, you ha- you're in bad health, uh, because it, it does still do you well. But I understand people who don't believe that based on everything else that turned out to not be true um, with, with, you know, for the whole way, all the way through the, the pandemic with all sorts of things, but very much so with the vaccines that were, you know, presented as this miracle, uh, like a vaccine, because what, what we understand for so many vaccines is that if you get vaccinated, that means you're actually not, not just that you're not going to get really sick, but you're not going to get that disease. That's true of other vaccines. This, is, this works more like the flu vaccine where, you know, get it if you want, but you're, you're not, you, you could still get the, you could still get the, the disease, which doesn't mean you shouldn't get it. It's just like, let's be honest with people. And so many, so many Americans feel like the public health bureaucracy, the experts, the your your Dr. Fauci's, et cetera, your CDCs were not honest or they were just wrong and they're not admitting it. They can they fine. Maybe it's not that they were lying, but they they don't know everything. They get things wrong. So they have to concede that or there's just not going to be any trust left in our society at all. And I think that, um, you know, if they had simply gotten a study, said, here's what this study said, here's the information, you know, you make up your own mind. Or even if they had said, here's the study, here's our interpretation of it, here's what we recommend based on this study in like a respectful way, I don't think they would have had such a hard time now saying, hey, actually, that study was wrong. Here's where we're going now. It's the fact that what they said was, they didn't say, here's this information, you make up your own mind. They said, this is the truth. And anybody who doesn't agree with us is a grandma killer, is an idiot, is a moron, hates Americans, is individualist and not caring about the collective, is disgusting. You know, cable news anchors lecturing you, mocking you if you don't agree with them, right? The amount of kind of 
condescension that they built into this. We are the science. In this house, we follow the science, right? The amount yeah. of moral preening that they built into their approach to this, right, makes it now much more difficult for them to admit that they had been wrong, right? Which is a lesson to us all, you know? Always approach the things you think you know with a little bit of humility to the people who don't agree with you because otherwise you're going to be in the situation where it is extremely mm -hmm. embarrassing, you know, to have been wrong. You know, I did want to mention something. Uh, Ron DeSantis, Governor DeSantis of Florida, has been speaking at uh, or spoke at a, a conservative conference that's taking place right now, the National Conservative Conference. Probably some people who've been on our show in the past are, are there or speaking. Rachel Bovard, we've had her on before. Um, she's a, you know, kind of member of this ideology. These are the more, uh, these are probably more botcha style conservatives or ones who are more <laughs> interested in what can the government do to, uh, in, in a pot, from a right populist perspective, uh, industrial policy, et cetera, there's probably a lot of support for things uh, that, that you might agree with, uh, actually less so than, than, than me. But uh, DeSantis apparently said that, um, uh, so he was defending his, uh, because there, there it's not just, there's not a government vaccine mandate, but DeSantis actually banned private companies from having, from requiring vaccines, which while I, I don't think I don't ag agree with the policy of, of having a vaccine mandate if you're a private company. I would not give the government, I don't think the government should or does have the power to prevent a private government from having a vaccine mandate if they want to. Um, that, that seems, on the, in the, on the exact same theory that I would not uh, require a company, a, you know, a, a Christian bakery to bake a cake for someone, or I would not, I said on the show, uh, 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 Brianna and I had this argument last week about uh, the, the Supreme Court health care decision for covering um, medical, uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, PrEP, which is the HIV uh, prevention drug, and the, and the Christian company that sued said they didn't want to cover that, they won, and I, I agree with that, because while I don't agree with that policy whatsoever, I wouldn't force people to do things they don't want to do or prevent them from doing things they want to do. So on that same argument, I, I think it's crazy for you know Republicans to embrace the idea that the government could prohibit a private company from requiring that. Like, I mean, do, I, do Republicans just expect they'll win forever? Like, what, what happens then when a Democrat comes in and requires something? Like, shouldn't we? Can't we move beyond everything being like required or forbidden and just like let leave it up to organizations and individuals and structures so i had to you know i i, I wanted to get that in there because i don't agree with this argument at all so but robbie how far do you take that so do you also think the government should not be able to bar private companies from discriminating based on gender race and sexuality as well I do. I, in fact, I do. Um, I, look, it's not a, a high priority for me to like undo um, civil rights <laughs> law, but a lot of a, a lot of the discrimination that existed, even in, was not like freely arrived at by by company, but was you know was required under uh, under Jim Crow and other policies. I don't think. Look, I, I don't think uh, there would be a, a serious effort to return to those restrictions. A, a company that does that is going to get protesters on the streets, which is absolutely appropriate. You know, I'll grab a sign and join them. Um, I don't think it, the government needs 
uh, ought, ought to do it because it can be because it's a slippery slope for requiring these companies to do all sorts of other things or inf you know infringing on sincerely held belief uh, it, it, uh, that a religious institutions can have and other institutions. So that would be my or you you know you got to show to me a need. You have to say here's why we need the government to require or forbid this because it's just so, it's it, here's the overwhelming reason why we would need this law. And then if if you I guess I'm gonna I'm a reasonable person if you persuade me we need this law I, you might change my mind but I don't think any of these I don't think these things are necessary mm -hmm. yeah I happen to have a cousin who works in mediation and he tells me that what happens all the time which shocked me I never would have thought this was like a regular occurrence but apparently um, very frequently men will hit on subordinate women and if they say no they'll fire them I mean that seemed to me like the kind of thing that I just assumed had gone by the what you know the way of the mm -hmm. the way of the horse and buggy cart right but apparently it is quite frequent. And, um, you know, we have, I, I, I believe we, you know, it's important to have these lies in place because, you, you know, a person's job, a person's livelihood is something that I think, you know, the government should protect. So I'm sort of consistent on the other side of this, right? I think from an economic point of view, from a legal point of view, right? Non-discrimination is part of, you know, the protection of, of not just the rights of individuals, but the right of an individual to support their family, which is very important. For the most part, though, I, I feel like companies, at least in this day and age, absolutely do not want their employees. It, look, it looks bad, right? Because you fire someone, then they can easily tell their story. You know, in the post-Me Too era, you, you can invite all sorts of like negative attention or you know punishments on the the firm for doing that. So I, I could be wrong. I think firms actually you know, want, in fact, might even default too far the other way to like, because, you know, if you're accused of something, I, I, I think it's, it's right to be treated with fairness, even if, you know, even if you're guilty of it. But they could default the other way because they don't want the negative um, uh, a PR. But maybe, uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. And maybe we still need those restrictions. But I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't impose new, like, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't really trust the government to be in charge of deciding what the policies should be, whether that's mm -hmm. DeSantis or Biden or whomever. Well, I, like, you talked in your radar about all, you know, all the, the acrimony in our society, and it's like, because it's not just, well, I disagree, but you do your thing. It's like, whoever wins, it gets enforced on everyone, which seems unhealthy for society. But that's just, that's just my view of it. All right, we'll have more yeah. Rising right after this. Stay with us. While the Biden administration is working to push through another must-pass spending bill to keep the government open beyond September 30th, there's one emergency provision of the bill Biden wants lawmakers to push, a $13.7 billion provision to help, you guessed it, Ukraine. According to responsible statecraft, if the new aid package goes through, it will mean the U.S. has allocated nearly $70 billion for this war, which tops Russia's entire defense budget, by the way, in 2021. Meanwhile, Just Foreign Policy analyzes spending and finds that if the request passes, the U.S. will have spent more than triple what the U.S. spent in Afghanistan in the first year after 9-11, adding that interest alone costs, that could uh, cost an additional $14 billion over 10 years. Um, that's a lot of money. It's incredible stuff. Money. It's incredible. And just for some context, obviously medical debt has grown over the course of the pandemic, but prior to the pandemic, I believe it was uh, valued at about $81 billion to cancel all medical debt in America. So think of whether you or your loved ones, people you know who have been suffering under the yoke of these horrible medical bills that are very difficult to anticipate, how many people have deferred medical treatment out of fear that they will be hit with the bill that they cannot afford. 
we're talking about all these debt jubilees and student debt cancellations and why don't we cancel other kinds of debt first? Like, I completely agree. I've been pushing for medical debt cancellation for a very long time and we're told repeatedly we can't afford those kinds of things. We can never have money to help the American people. And look, a commensurate amount of money is being spent and for an international entanglement that is not really entirely clear and has not been, I would argue, sufficiently explained why America has this kind of um, an economic investment in it to begin with. And I think it really disrupts a lot of what we've been told historically about what the country can and cannot do, what, where money comes from, what kind of spending causes inflation or what kind of spending is at least um, discouraged with that as an excuse. And I think the government both parties have a lot of explaining to do as you start to increasingly juxtapose our enormous, limitless military spending with the crises ongoing in Mississippi and any number of things in the United States that the money could be We always spent find on. money for this. We always find money for this, for foreign adventurism. And, uh, and, you know, we should remember as we're comparing it to what was spent in Afghanistan, massive amount of money of lives lost uh, in, in the wars there for what benefit? We left. The country was returned to um, the, the control of the people we were fighting. Uh, we gave up eventually. That's, that was what spending those resources got us there. So are we repeating that? Are we, uh, have we learned any lessons whatsoever? What is the compelling interest this time? Is there any, why is there never a limit? There's never a, well, this is what we're willing to do. This is what we're willing to spend. And then that's it. It's, it always gets exceeded it, beyond, far beyond what the appetite of the American people is, uh, that is not even being consulted. No one cares what the American people think or want about. Yeah. Like, who, who agrees that we should be doing this? You will find, I'm sure there's some people, but you will find far less public sentiment in support of this than there is in Congress, where it's virtually universal, some, some Republicans now against uh, maybe a few of the kind of more squad-leaning Democrats mm -hmm. having some questions about this, although still not really publicly turning yeah. against it. It is unani virtual unanim unanimity in the government. There's not unanimity of thought among the people. The people are wondering how, how and why this money is being spent like this. Yeah, absolutely. And it's curious. I'd, I'd be curious to see whether or not there are any kind of force the vote moments from whether or not it's the few people on the left or the few people on the right who are in Congress who uh, have been publicly objecting to this war, at least demanding more of an explanation for our involvement, whether or not um, you know, Biden's pat broader package is in fact held up by some of these people on principle, as they can do, as Manchin and Cinema have been kind of famous in doing over the course of the Biden administration as a whole. You know, we have, uh, there's a different conversation happening right now about whether or not Bernie Sanders is going to hold up, I believe it's a appropriations bills, over uh, the, uh, the so-called Joe Manchin side deal to the, uh, um, the climate package that everybody heralded, which would undo a lot of the climate progress in that bill. Um, so I think this is a really interesting political moment that will teach the public a lot about what is possible and what is not, and to the extent to which politicians are willing to say they object to a lot of things, but ultimately, you know, oftentimes get away with not actually putting their money where their mouth is. Yeah, we need um, the, the anti-interventionist Republicans and Democrats to come together and start opposing this stuff constructively. This is something, this is something the American regime wants from, from the Biden administration, generals, uh, the military industrial complex, and then many top Republicans are going along with it. Right, they'll, they'll oppose, they'll fight every, 
every inch of the Biden agenda. They'll fight every part of it except this. Yeah. They won't I, fight this. And we should be clear. I mean, the way that spending works is not as though there's like a pot of money. And because $70 billion went to Ukraine, there is no longer $70 billion to go to the United States. I mean, that's not how the budget works. However, I think it is a demonstration of how the government is willing to spend, is willing to print money for one set category right. of things, not another category of things. So even if they were to persist in Ukraine, I do think this is a leverage opportunity to say, okay, if you're willing to come up with $70 billion for Ukraine, why can't you help the citizens of Flint, Michigan or Mississippi or any number it, of it, the dozens, I think almost thousands of cities in the United States that are suffering from a water crisis or the other infrastructure issues that are really hurting you're, Americans. You're right that it doesn't work exactly like a pot of money through because the government can just print more money, that kind of thing. But doing that also has economic consequences, right? It, it arguably, many economists will argue, it contributes to inflation. Um, it, you know, it has to it has to be paid for some way down, you know, down the line. They can borrow, they can wait. It's not like literally a pot of money that then they just run out, but it does have economic consequences. So what they prioritize matters, and this is what they prioritize, right? And, and, I, and you're not wrong that, you know, while I would not necessarily um, probably spend money on many things you want to spend, if we're spending money at all, why is why is this the thing that gets that the money gets spent on you medical know, debt could be a yeah. could be a better I do cause. think we agree on quite a few things I don't I, would you we agree about medical debt does it not seem to be a priority to make sure that a capital yeah. city of one of our states doesn't have brown water coming out of the tap or the ongoing crisis in we need Michigan to uh, change lead pipes need to be changed and out. energy prices Absolutely. as we head into the summer any and in the yeah. winter rather any number of things I can imagine we would agree on and a, a large number of Americans would agree on as well frankly medical debt cancellation is enormously popular and again i'm sorry there was only one candidate in the race who was advocating for it and it got very little media attention because there is not an interest with on capitol hill and among elites and actually doing things that serve the interests of the american people so we'll continue to follow the story and i'm for one am very happy that we're having more of a focus on uh the things that americans that the American government can do, because so much of the conversation, oftentimes by elites, is a litany of excuses about why they can't do anything to actually help the people that they've been elected to serve. We'll have more rising for you after this. Building an economy that finally works for working families. We started with the American Rescue Plan. That's taken us from economic crisis to economic resurgence. Meanwhile, Biden's Fed chair, Janet Yellen, noted the hardships Americans are facing, but again said we are not in a recession. Inflation is way too high, and it's essential that we bring it down. And that's something that Americans feel every day. And I think it's what's causing uh, them tremendous distress. And, of course, that is President Biden's, our administration's, a top economic priority to do that. But um, we're not in a recession. The labor market is exceptionally strong. Last week, Senator Elizabeth Warren fired back at Fed Chair Jerome Powell over the Fed's decision to raise interest rates as a tool to combat inflation. And she warned that unemployment would rear its head as a result. Let's watch. Rate increases make it more likely that companies will fire people and slash hours to shrink wage costs. Rate increases also make it more expensive for families to do things like borrow money for a house. And so far, the cost this year of a mortgage has already doubled. Uh, 
Inflation is like an illness, and the medicine needs to be tailored to the specific problem. Otherwise, you could make things a lot worse. And right now, the Fed has no control over the main drivers of rising prices, but the Fed can slow demand by getting a lot of people fired and making families poorer. And while President Biden is working to increase energy supplies and straighten out supply chain kinks and break up monopolies and bring down prices, you could actually tip this economy into recession. So I just want to say, you know what's worse than high inflation and low unemployment? It's high inflation and a recession with millions of people out of work. And I hope you'll reconsider that as you drive this, before you drive this economy off a cliff. Warren isn't alone. According to The Intercept's Ken Klippenstein, the Federal Reserve's own economists are warning of a severe recession if the Fed continues to hike interest rates. According to Ken, and as Elizabeth Warren pointed out, interest rate hikes are a way to put economic power back in the hands of the very rich by driving up unemployment, since higher interest rates make it more expensive for banks to loan people money, leading to less investment, like hiring workers, for example. Mm. Yeah, we've, we've talked on this show and to a number of economists about whether or not the Fed is basically using a blunt tool. Um, you know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and that's what's happening here with these interest rate hikes. And it is interesting to have a more robust conversation happening about the kinds of interventions that could be done in the, in the alternative. Now, we're seeing in places like the UK, even their conservative government saying, okay, we're going, we see a crisis with energy costs, we're going to cap energy costs at $2,000 a family. And I, I would be interested to see if those kinds of interventions ever become popular here, although I'm skeptical given that in the UK and in parts of Europe, those kind of interventions are the result of the kind of labor uprising, which is only beginning to rear its head in the United States. Well, also in that, I, I watched more of that clip um, online. Elizabeth Warren mentions that, um, you know, the energy, she asks Jerome Powell about, you know, will this will this, what you're doing, help with energy costs? And he says, well, no, probably not. Yeah. Uh, and she acknowledges that largely when we're talking about the energy problem, we're talking mostly about the Re Russia-Ukraine conflict. Mm -hmm. But then we move on, and obviously Jerome Powell doesn't have anything to do with uh, with that policy mm -hmm. specifically, or I guess neither does Elizabeth Warren because no one votes on these things. No, it's just up to Biden's discretion to just yeah. participate in this war. And so I'm wondering with the, the good news, um, we haven't talked about this yet because you're just joining us for the, for the week now, um, the good news that Ukraine had over the weekend, they had some mm -hmm. military successes. They took back significant amounts of territory, and that, which, which good for them, uh, they, again, they are the defense in this war. Um, however, I was also seeing a lot of, uh, you know, kind of mainstream commentary in response to that along the lines of, oh, you know, they could win the war any day now. They could, you know, the Putin regime will be toppled. And that sounds, uh, you know, I, it's hard to know if that's true. It doesn't sound true. It sounds unlikely, in fact. And a lot of these same people are the people that I can remember from, you know, 15 or 20 years ago saying, oh, yeah, we're about to, you know, win everything in Iraq and Afghanistan, etc. So I, I want to be cautious. But the, the Ukrainians doing better um, unless that changes Russia's course of action and makes them think, OK, yeah, we, we now we really do want to pursue a diplomatic measure that could cause more energy hardship because they're yeah. winning. And so there's going to be a doubling down yeah, and a greater investment. Appetite. I mean, there's a doubling down if they're winning or if they're losing. But especially that they're winning, there's going to be, oh, yeah, we just have to hold on a little bit longer. The end's in sight, even though we know so often from these you know, pure, these other related conflicts, it's, the end is never actually in sight. Yeah, look, every war ends with diplomacy. And mm -hmm. the question is whether or not the fighting actually 
makes the settlements that are ultimately going to be reached more or less likely. And so this is why I think it's so important and why so many people, particularly on the quote unquote far left, have been trying to emphasize the root causes of the conflict, not to assign blame to Ukraine or absolve Putin of responsibility or Russia of a responsibility, but to say we have to understand what instigated this crisis to have a sense of what is going to ultimately lead Russia, Russia to want to back off. And again, the expansion of NATO is this uh, you know, unspoken quantity that's still hanging in the air that isn't really affected by any of the fighting that's happening right now. And I'll be interested to see, will this make Ukraine and the West feel more emboldened about its ability to continue the ex expanse of NATO? If so, does that really mean that Russia is going to cool its jets right now? And ultimately, if it really is about that as a fundamental issue, is any of this fighting going to militate one way or the other. Right. It would be great if these successes led to, okay, Ukraine has just won a big victory. Now let's negotiate again. Let's yeah. actually have this end to this war that, that I, the estimates now, I was talking about this yesterday with Bacha, I, like we don't know exactly, but there's credible estimates of like 50,000 Russian casualties mm -hmm. so far. I mean, this is, these people are dying for nothing, mm -hmm. for the lie, the young people's lives lost, horrible for their families. It's, it's just, uh, war is bad. It's yeah. really bad. It's something to be avoided yeah. at all costs. And it's crippling our, uh, our economy, economy here. Global economy. Well, Wall Street is already ringing the alarm on the economy. Yesterday, the highest number of S&P 500 companies cited recession on a quarter two earnings uh, call since uh, 2012, according to FactSet. While Goldman Sachs is reportedly preparing to lay off workers across the company as soon as next week, according to the New York Times, Goldman reported in July that its second quarter profit had dropped nearly 50% from a year before. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. We don't really talk about you, yeah, I can like tell you're Goldman. devastated that <laughs> Goldman Sachs is laying off people. I can see the, uh, do you need... <laughs> the, the reality is, and we've talked about this as well, that we companies like this, not just banking companies, but companies, uh, you know, across this kind of a sector, have been experiencing record profits in 2020, 2021, as the pandemic raged. You know, billionaires saw the largest increase in wealth that I think that they have seen historically. So I'd be interesting to understand better whether or not this is uh, reflective of more of a return to normal and how much this reflects an actual dip in the economy. Well, right, because, the, you know, the shutting down of the economy that was done during the pandemic was not across the board. Right. If, you know, people who had small businesses, they suffered. Uh, they, it was hard to make payroll. They had to rely on uh, I mean, subsidies from the, from the government to the 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 payments made to people to keep them afloat. Meanwhile, some major company, major tech companies, uh, Zoom, the, you know, the, the companies that really thrive because we were all trapped in our houses. And like, I don't, you know, Amazon I, as well, Amazon as well. And look, I don't have a I don't have a, you know, ideologically, I don't have like a natural hostility to biz, businesses, big businesses making profits. That's fine by me. Don't care. Uh, but if it's done because if their profits are greater because the government like forbid other people to make money and and at their behest and you, you know what do they do these tech giants want the want everybody socially distanced and shut their home forever because that's how you sell more things on Amazon probably so we have to be very you know wary of not well obviously you don't do this I try not to either <laughs> just cheerleading the successes of big organizations big businesses right when it's not when it's not always I think it's often in people's benefits because those profits are because they're 
they're selling things people want, but it has to be it has to be a fair Right. Uh, a level a, a level playing ground and an environment in which you know the government says well this sector is canceled this is okay you can operate on this side this is the like that's not fair yeah and it's worth noting that it does look like Goldman Sachs's annual income for 2021 was 21 billion dollars, a little over $21 billion. Um, and that was up a 137% increase from 2020. And now they're back down to $15.7 billion as of June, 2022, like that 12-month that cycle. So it does seem to be having, it does seem that it experienced a little bit of that, that, that COVID peak that so many companies did that were able to profit off of the crisis. And while this might not be a, a turn, return to normal entirely, it does seem to be a little bit of, of that. Because look, in 2019, there were, uh, well, yeah, it does seem to be a, somewhat of a return to normal. Mm. So we'll see how that continues to shape out. And we have some actual inflation numbers to share with you now. While gas prices are down, so there are some other numbers that reflecting what Americans are seeing in other sectors. Food is up. 13.5%, rent is up 6.7%, electricity 15.8%, health insurance up 24.3%, which is killer. Yeah. So yeah. the people are really uh, suffering on a variety of fronts. And, uh, you know, it, the even though the, the gas situation has improved, which is good, probably largely responsible for Democrats no longer looking like they're going to get wiped out in November, um, the economy is far from working as it should. Yeah, and then we'll see if we can get some bipartisan solutions on that health care piece. Unfortunately, um, Joe Biden is talking, obviously, about this prescription drug plan, but even that has largely uh, gotten approval from the pharmaceutical industry. It's only focused on a small portion of the most expensive drugs, which is important, obviously, but far from the kind of overhaul that you'll need to get those numbers down to a place that they should be. Regardless, I am anxiously awaiting your radar next, Robbie. Here's what I think. I think we should have a law at the federal level that would say after 15 weeks, no abortion on demand, except in cases of rape, incest, to save the life of the mother. And that should be where America's at. And what would that mean if we adopted that position? The next chart. Where are the chart people? If we adopted my bill, our bill, we would be in the mainstream of most everybody else in the world. The Wall Street Journal is out with new polling on the issue. 60% of voters said abortion should be legal in all or most cases, up from 55% in March. 29% said it should be illegal, except in the cases of rape, incest, and when the woman's life is endangered, compared to 30% in March, where just 6% said it should be illegal in all cases. And more polling shows that the Dobbs ruling has given an incentive for Democrat and independent voters to hit the polls come midterms. 83% of Democrats say they are more likely to vote, while 53% of independents responded similarly. And another poll showed that 62% opposed an abortion ban at six weeks of pregnancy, but only included an exception for the health of the mother. And 57% opposed a ban at 15 weeks with the same exception. Meanwhile, 77% opposed banning women from traveling to other states to seek out an abortion. And 81% were against banning all abortions. So it does seem like there is a ratcheting up here. Obviously, you know, currently there's a viability line that most states have 
have respected that sets uh, limitations on getting an abortion at 22 to 24 weeks. Now we're talking about a 15-week ban, which was the um, objection, uh, the object rather, of the Dobbs ruling in the first instance. Lindsey Graham points to the fact that in many other countries in the world, there is, including in Europe, countries that we kind of see as peer parallel countries in terms of, you know, democracy and, you know, human rights and things like that, do have 15-week bans. But of course, part of the reason why we did have a longer tail in the Roe hearing, uh, Roe ruling rather, part of why the justices decided to have a viability line instead of a, a shorter timeline is because unlike in those countries, it's harder for women in America to access health care because we don't have a universal system. Yeah, I don't understand. Uh why Lindsey Graham brought this up at all. It mm. seems like if you're looking at the polling, pretty clear that, uh, and the change in, in just Republican fortunes over the last few weeks and months as a result of Dobbs, this is not an issue that voters want uh, to be talked about, uh, or, or rather, that voters, voters don't want abortion restrictions. Um, at the federal level, look, I, I think the 15-week uh, ban and then, you know, further exceptions down the line, it, it, like Graham says, is not a, is not, it's not an extreme policy. It's one other countries do have. Uh, but as I've said on other issues, I, I, you know, I wouldn't put this in the federal government's hands. I would let, you know, states experiment with different, um, different policies and, you know, see which one people like best. It's clear that people don't have the level of support uh, that you would want to see for this, you know, universal across the board at the federal level. Like, don't ma don't don't bring this up. This seems like a very self-inflicted wound to bring this up. And it's right. It's not. But if you look at the polling, it's not. Uh, it's not popular enough. It, it has been in the past. You could get close to around a 50% support for something similar to this, mm -hmm. um, allowing abortion in the first trimester, then having a you know cutoff around there with then some leeway later on. Again, I don't think that's an unreasonable policy, but no reason to do it at the federal level. And, it, and it's clear that since the Dobbs ruling, more pe people who might have previously been for that are saying, oh, wait a minute, I, I don't like what abortion enforcement actually yeah. looks like. I, I, what it would look like at the federal level would be even more of a disaster. Yeah, I mean, states' rights, states' rights, where is this gone? And I, and yeah. I wonder about this polling question. So often when we talk about progressive policies, there's a rejoinder that, oh, it's not as popular as it seems. You know, people might say they like Medicare for all, but it depends on how you phrase the question and right. things like that. I wonder if sometimes when we ask people about whether or not they support abortion bans or would want to overturn Roe, there is this, this extent to which they are answering with the belief that it's not actually going to happen, that mm -hmm. they can kind of symbolically express a kind of conservative value without having to really reckon with the implications of what it would, what would happen if they won. And it does feel like the Republicans are in a situation now where they're the dog that caught the car. And it's not just that they don't know what to do with it. They're doubling down on chasing a car that's already kind of bashed them in the face. So Yeah. And, and I get that it was an, this was an important public policy win for conservatives. You can't promise your conservative base things and then just not, just not give it to them over and over again. That's part of the reason the Republican base got so mad at the GOP establishment for so many years, feeling they, like they were not getting the policies. Social conservatives, in particular, mm. felt like they were getting lip service from the GOP. I can relate. Uh, <laughs> right. You can, and they were getting lip service. They were getting, you know, even and that, them wanting policies that I wouldn't necessarily support. But then the GOP is lying to them, saying, oh, yes, we're on board. We're going to do all these socially conservative things that they were never going to do. So given the opportunity to actually deliver on something, a, a substantial, not a substantial maybe portion of the entire country, but a, a huge 
majority of, uh, of, of the grassroots activist conservatives, something they have desperately wanted, the thing they want almost the most mm. for decades, you had to give it to them and, and just deal with from a tactical, strategic, party-building standpoint, you had to give them that and just kind of suffer whatever short-term electoral consequences mm. you're going to suffer. Mm. So I, I agree with that, but there's no reason to continue to down. do like what Lindsey Graham is doing mm. here. So at the end of his press conference, a reporter asked him a very tough question about pregnancy complications and shared her own story. Let's watch. Graham, what would you say to somebody like me who found out that their son had an anomaly that made him compatible in life in 16 weeks? I had regular appointments. I did everything I right. And at 16 weeks, we found out that our son was likely not yep. live. When he was born, he lived for eight days. Yeah. He bled from every orifice of his body, but we were allowed to get that choice for him. Would you be robbing that choice from those women? What do you say to someone like well, Here's what I would say. The world pretty much has spoken on this issue. Uh, the developed world has said at this stage into the, the pregnancy, uh, the child feels pain, and, and we're saying we're going to join the rest of the world and not be like Iran. As to your particular case, there'll be exceptions for life of the mother and rape and incest. But, uh, well, ma'am, this, this, there are 55,000 abortions uh, after the 15-week period. And I think we're resolved to get America back in line with the rest of the world. And we won't know where America is until we vote, until we debate. And so to my Democratic friends, you're going around calling all of us every name you can think of. We're a bunch of wackos. Your idea is wacko, not ours. Let's vote. Let's vote. Give me a chance to vote on this bill. We'll take her considerations and we'll vote. And I guarantee if we have a debate on the floor of the United States Senate where we can explain what we're doing versus what they would do, we'll do really well with the American people. And over time, God willing, we're going to be like the rest of the world and not like Iran at the federal level when it comes to abortion. We're going nowhere. Thank you very much. Again, I don't think the policy, and I, I'm sure you disagree, but he is right that like, a 15-week kind of cutoff is the norm in some of our peer countries. France, for instance, I think it's a 14-week cutoff. Um, I, I think it is, he is right that that is the sort of moderate policy, the moderate in-between that other countries do. I just would let states experiment with it because I, I prefer... I actually do believe in states' rights, and when the, for contentious public policy questions where there are a, a wide range of opinions, where I myself have unsettled views about the subject, I would leave it to you know more local authorities to enact whatever the you know median will of the actual citizen of that state is. So I think part of the issue is that there is suddenly an interest in what's going on in the other parts of the developed world where they also have more in the terms of social safety supports and a health care system than American women actually have. And again, part of the reason why we have the longer 
uh, time for people to go and get abortions because the, the Supreme Court justices in the 1970s understood that it took American women longer to get health care because we don't have the same provisions. So if there's this interest in modeling the United States after much of the world, Scandinavia, etc., I say let's go whole hog. Let's have universal health care. Let's do what America is unique among developed nations and almost all nations in doing and go ahead and sign on to the Universal Direct, uh, Declaration, um, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which we don't sign on to because it requires we guarantee certain things like housing for kids that we won't do in this country as a, as a human right. Moreover, I think that ultimately Graham is going to have to get past the reality that he has a woman in the audience telling him that she, at 16 weeks, doing everything that she was supposed to do with a wanted pregnancy, found out that her child was going to live a life of extreme pain in the short term, bleeding from every orifice, and that his ban would have prevented her from being able to make the choice of whether or not to terminate that pregnancy or not. And he looks her in the eyes and all he can do is repeat this line about not wanting to be Iran. Well, a lot of people would think that uh, articulating a often what is considered, often considered to be a religious um, objection to having the right to terminate a pregnancy at an earlier time is imposing your religious uh, views on the country in the way that is similar to Iran, not letting people freely and states make their own decisions. All right, well, I can't wait to argue with you in your radar <laughs> coming up next. Well, so I don't, we don't know if it's an argue one. We can completely uh, agree about student debt. Is it about for the, the Legend of Zelda? <laughs> oh, it's about student debt. Never mind. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> More rising right after this. All right, Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, looks like the verdict is in. Per Jeff Stein's analysis over at the Washington Post, most of the evidence at this point suggests student debt cancellation has boosted Biden's numbers with young people pretty dramatically. Biden's net approval went from 11 points in the red to 11 points in the black from August to September. Even conservative voters seem to be warming up to the policy. After all, student debt has no partisan bias, and many Republican parents are struggling with the debt owed by their children and their children's partners, not to mention their own debt. Take a look at this. Philip Rosiowski voted for Trump twice, doesn't like the direction of the country, but on student loans? Myself, I still have a lot of student loans to take care of for my children. Rosiowski says he is not against student loan forgiveness, and we'll see if he or his kids qualify. There has to be some change, and that's what I'm voting for, change. 84-year-old Tom DePew, a moderate Republican and former banker, says debts should be repaid, but views student debt differently. My daughters all went through college. They have student loans. I like to see it. It helps them. But despite this praise, does Biden deserve the good poll numbers? Did he advance a student debt plan to boost America's, uh, sorry, to boost Democrats' midterm chances, knowing that it might not actually survive Supreme Court review? Almost immediately after Biden announced his plan to cancel $10,000 of student debt for all debtors making less than $125,000 a year, along with up to $20,000 of debt for qualifying debtors who took out Pell Grants, Republican Congress member Ted Cruz began publicly plotting ways to block student debt relief. The Washington Post reported last week that Senator Cruz had been consulting with a top Supreme Court litigator over how to challenge the policy in court. 
Now, to sue a potential litigant, the first move uh, is to prove that you have standing. That is, that a claimant has to prove that they were actually harmed by the debt relief policy. Courts have found that it's not enough to simply be a taxpayer. If that were the case, everyone could basically have a claim to challenge anything that happened anywhere in America, no matter how attenuated they were from actual harm. And since student debt cancellation is merely the government who granted federal loans in the first place, foregoing repayment, student loan cancellation isn't actually funded by taxpayer dollars anyway, nor does it come at the expense of any real constituency. So the best case scenario as Cruz sees it is ironically to have a student loan processor like Navient or Great Lakes bring a claim. This is a stunning admission in and of itself. After all of the hand-wringing about how this policy would hurt the working class, from a legal perspective, the only group that even remotely, plausibly is harmed by student debt cancellation are the very predatory banks who have been profiting off of the government's education loans. One of the biggest student debt servicers, Navient, formerly owned by housing baddie Sally Mae, just settled a predatory student loan suit for $1.85 billion earlier this year after it was accused of peddling risky and expensive subprime loans that they knew or should have known were likely to default. The lawsuits reveal that Sally Mae knew the default rate for private student loans was as high as 92%, but it still pushed these doomed loans as a way to build relationships with colleges who would be paid the proceeds of the loans regardless of whether or not the borrower defaulted. Sally Mae could then take advantage of the servicer contracts. Navient agreed to cancel $1.7 billion in debt owed by more than 66,000 borrowers and pay over $140 million in other penalties due to its abusive lending practices. Navient told the Washington Post that they, of course, deny all allegations and that the decision to settle was purely economic. Now, those abusive lending practices included misleading borrowers who were having difficulty making payments into entering what are known as long-term forbearances. Uh, forbearance is a pause in payments that lenders can extend if a debtor can't pay and while they regain their ability to make payments. But interest can still accrue during a loan forbearance, causing the average amount paid over the lifetime of a loan to be much, much higher. For example, I went into forbearance for one year uh, when I took on a low-paying federal clerkship after law school, living at home to save money and commuting over an hour and a half to Brooklyn. And that added over $10,000 to my own law school debt in just one year. Now, Navient could have directed students like myself trying to navigate the Byzantine loan process toward income-based repayment plans instead. But they didn't, misleading borrowers and costing them as much as $4 billion in interest and fees, according to the Student Borrower Protection Center. Another student loan company was issued a $1 million fine in March after it, too, misled borrowers about their loan forgiveness options. Students eligible for public loan forgiveness plans because they devoted their lives to public service were instead told by Ed Financial that they were not eligible. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau made it clear that this was in fact breaking the law. This is truly cruel and unusual behavior. Navient even illegally overcharged nearly 78,000 service members. Moreover, these loan servicers became obscenely rich off of this scam. Navient paid more than $4.9 billion to shareholders through dividends and stock buybacks. Its CEO alone profited more than $47 million individually off of students 
too poor to go to college without taking out debt. And now, Ted Cruz wants to make these criminals the face of his plan to challenge Biden's popular student loan forgiveness program. Literally, the only ones hurt from this policy are the corporate crooks who have been profiting at the expense of American students. And Cruz, for some reason, wants to make them his allies. It's an optics disaster that exposes the interests of corporate conservatives like Cruz for what they really are, Wall Street before Main Street. Progressive Congresswoman Ilhan Omar responded to Cruz, calling him a, quote, miserable little weasel and affirming that student debt cancellation is legally sound. But is she right? About the legal argument part of that, I mean. <laughs> this issue was debated in a Washington Post column last week. Harvard professor Lawrence Tribe affirmed that the White House is on safe legal footing, citing the HEROES Act of 2003 as a legislative hook that grants Biden executive authority to cancel student debt. But the HEROES Act is a post-9-11 law that allows the president to suspend or cancel na uh, debt in a national emergency. Whether or not COVID still qualifies as an ongoing emergency is a hotly debated topic, with conservatives and Biden supporters alike aligning on a desire to put the pandemic behind them, the former due to concerns about CDC overreach and politicization of COVID, and the latter for political reasons. Biden fares better in midterms if he can claim to have resolved the crisis. Of course, we are still technically legally in a declared state of COVID emergency, but given how the Supreme Court, the conservative Supreme Court, has ruled on COVID-related policies like mask mandates and the eviction moratorium, some are skeptical that they would uphold an executive order that depends on COVID being characterized as an ongoing crisis. I spoke to law professor Jed Sugarman, who took a skeptical view of Biden's legal standing in the Washington Post article uh, on my own, bat, uh, sorry, on my own podcast, uh, Bad Faith, on Monday, and he offered some more clarity. Both on bad faith and in a piece he wrote in The Atlantic last week, Sugarman argued that Biden should rely on the Higher Education Act of 1965 instead of the HEROES Act as a hook for his executive authority. Now, the language in the 1965 Act does not rely on COVID and aligns much better with Biden's own justifications for student debt relief, in which he has barely referenced COVID as a cause. The 1965 Act allows the Department of Education to, quote, enforce, pay, compromise, waive, or release any right, title, claim, lien, or demand, however acquired, including any equity or any right of redemption. Now, that language is squarely on point for Biden's debt relief plan. And it's no surprise, the 1965 Act was explicitly intended to resolve the kinds of education crises that predated the pandemic, and which Biden has rightly cited as the reason why student debt cancellation is needed. So why, some progressives are now asking, would Biden choose a less applicable statute that relies on a justification likely to rankle not only Supreme Court justices who are conservative, but liberal, conservative, liberal uh, justices as well, in Jed's view? Well, this is the point at which this conversation tips into some speculation. One cynical argument is that Joe Biden wants to exploit the goodwill of young voters and older voters too to carry Democrats through midterms, knowing that he'll never have to make good on his promise of partial debt cancellation. Similar arguments would put forward to explain why the Democrats seem to cave to Cori Bush's protests on the Capitol steps to extend the eviction moratorium last summer. 
Some have opined that the Democrats only bent the knee to Cori Bush because they knew the courts would overturn the eviction moratorium immediately after Bush's so-called win. Is Biden similarly hoping to be able to hide behind the courts? One other theory Professor Sugarman and I discussed on Bad Faith was whether Biden is worried that the authority granted under the Higher Education Act of 1965 is actually too broad for his narrow incrementalist agenda. Sugarman argued that Biden would have a tough time canceling all student debt under the HEROES Act. In fact, Sugarman wonders if Biden might have to narrow the debt relief he's already promised to make it so that it's tailored to those who can prove they were actually affected by COVID. And I want to be clear here that this is by no means confirmed. I also spoke to Sparky Abraham from the Debt Collective, who's been a guest here on Rising, on my Collins show on Monday. And he offered some strong pushback to Sugarman's theories, which people should definitely take with a grain of salt. Uh, Sparky's view is that Biden's policy actually does pass muster under the HEROES Act and won't need to be narrowed at all. But what's clear, even in Sparky's own observation, is that the Higher Education Act of 1965 grants much broader authority to enact much more comprehensive relief. And a very cynical view of Joe Biden might see his choice to use the HEROES rather than the Education Act as a reflection of his unwillingness to open himself up to political pressure to do more. The reality is that Joe Biden, like Ted Cruz, is a huge recipient of Wall Street money, and the loan, service, loan servicing industry excuse me, clearly has an influence in the White House. The $10,000 of debt cancellation was their number, the debt servicer's number, a number calculated to get payments going again, while doing little to address the huge amount of interest accruing for students due to the bank's illegal and predatory behavior. We live in an oligarchy where leaders from both parties are undependable advocates for working class or even middle class interests. And the courts, staffed by unelected and unaccountable elites, side more often than not with corporate interests, cultural issues aside. Now, I want to be clear, the first hurdle for a legal challenge to student debt cancellation is proving standing. And it really isn't clear that Ted Cruz and his corporate cronies will successfully make the case that predatory borrowers have standing, especially since borrowers are still intact and profiting during the moratorium. And since their ability to service student loans in the first place is completely contingent on them being engaged by the government to do so, Biden could simply move this processing in-house. And maybe he should. I'll continue to follow this story as it develops, but it's worth noting here that once again, all the interests align with Wall Street and the banks, regardless of party. And it's worth asking why it is that no one is fighting full-throatedly for the people here. Hmm. You know, I was uh, looking at, well, while you were delivering your radar, I was looking at Axios reporting on this story, the Navian story. Look, okay, right, if they're cheating people or scamming people, right, they shouldn't do that. I agree with you. But it is funny to hear Elizabeth Warren describe what this company is doing. If these reports are accurate, they reveal a particularly nefarious and harmful last-ditch tactic by Navient to profiteer off the hardship of borrowers that are finally within grasping distance of obtaining relief from their abusive student loans. And it's a broken student loan system. 
Let's change the system then. If it's if, if it's truly a, the like the federal government is doing this exact thing. It's, it's, I, she, I she's would, a, yeah, I would love to change the system, and frankly, so would Elizabeth Warren. The you know Elizabeth Warren had a plan to do a much more substantive overhaul of how we finance education in the country. I don't remember. I mean, I didn't work for her campaign, but certainly, obviously, Bernie Sanders has a bill that is introduced into Congress, and people could vote on it if they wanted tomorrow to dramatically overhaul our public education financing system and go ahead and it. just make let's public college is tuition free. But here's the thing, Elizabeth's not wrong in describing what actually happened. When you have student debt and you graduate and you call them up and you ask about your repayment plans, you are stuck in a Byzantine morass where they are directing you and telling you very explicitly, no, that's not, you, you can't do that. You're not eligible for this. And yes, you're eligible for that. And what was shown and why they had to pay out all of that money in these lawsuits is that even though a lot of students had the option to simply lower their payments based on their income in a way that would cause the total amount of their loan to stay much smaller over time with interest, they intentionally told people that their only options were to go into deferral, which can add if you have six-figure debt, or even if you have five-figure debt, can add thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars to your debt burden, even in a year. That's how I have some. No, I, I know people who started I'm, with 180000 It's tremendously 000, complicated. It's a bad idea. Don't do I mean, I, people should regard like taking on massive debt to go to better or fancier colleges the it's same way you would. It's not better or fancier same, colleges. It's, it it's is, state, it's it state is affordable if you... It's not, you are, Robbie. It, it can be affordable. It, but, but we know all, I know all sorts of people, not, we've interviewed Robbie. people on the show who have, who have made different educational choices and got to college to have to dozens of friends who went to state schools that still cost $12,000 plus a year who have debt from those schools because they were poor, Robbie. They're poor. Their parents couldn't afford it. They can't stay at home during vacations because there's not a room for their parents to stay there in. Are other... They're working public service jobs. You can't work a summer and pay for school anymore because you there's no part-time job college, that can pay you, can... you 20000 40000 $60,000, $80,000 a year. Some of, at some of these state schools, you can get your, um, your tuition paid for if you get a scholarship or something like that. Um, or go to a community college, or just don't do it. Are don't you, go into debt to do it. Okay, so as we discussed on this show before, affluent people who went to college love to tell other people that they shouldn't have the same opportunities. For poor people to go to college, apparently they have to be geniuses that get that, that get scholarships, that get academic scholarships, they have to be a superstar sports player that gets an athletic scholarship, or you have to have rich, you know, rich parents, which they obviously don't have. For rich people, all you have to do is have a desire to go to college and get more money and make more money over the course of your career. So why is it that there's a different set of rules for rich people in accessing this thing which they obviously want and obviously rich have taken advantage of, but poor people would just say, oh, well, if you weren't able to jump through all these hoops that I didn't have to jump through, you shouldn't have the same rights and privileges that I do. Uh, by virtue of being rich, yes, we'll always be able to afford better and different things than other people. No, but, but education I, is a human right, Robbie. And if you don't agree with that, then that's fine. But when I we don't live in a with world that. where you have to, we decided in this country that high school education is a human right, because at a certain point, you don't have an ability to compete in a workforce, and you don't have a country that can run and function if you, you don't, don't have the ability to compete in a workforce because we've created a system that makes people go to college in order to be eligible to be a working person. That's, it's a dumb that's system that has just pushed, out, pushed back in time the age at which you can actually work or participate in the people labor force. People who go to vocational schools have college debt. Some My mother went do. to a vocational high school. She worked her way through college. She had to take For an extra vocation? semester. Oh, she she learned did secretarial practice when mm -hmm. she was in in 
in, in high school. And apparently, a lot of people believe that that's enough and her aspiration to have a different kind of life and a different career for herself than being a legal secretary for an entire life was beyond her. And she should have settled and stayed in Cleveland, Ohio and lived a certain kind of life. Yeah. She took out student loan debt at a time when it was much cheaper. And she still had student loan debt and has student loan debt into adulthood, a very small amount remaining. But it was much cheaper and you literally could work your way through some college, doing summer jobs, working for a year and saving up. We don't live in that world for reasons that you and I agree are predatory and wrong and should be overhauled from the beginning. But don't sit and tell a group of students who were lectured for the last 20 years that the only thing that you could do to be successful in life and avoid being poor is to go to college and then do a bait and switch and say that we're not going to be as mad at these predatory organizations, which Ted Cruz now wants to ally with, you know, to block reform. Washington, D.C. requires you, has tried to require, it, it's been blocked in court, but has tried to require uh, people who want to be daycare, childcare professionals, require them to get teaching, require them to get education degrees. They're forcing them to go to college. There's no, you don't need an education degree Do to watch a, children. Do people have to go to college to be a doctor? Oh my, that's so ridiculous. That's absurd. Yeah, to be a doctor, yes. Not to watch people's kids. That's dumb. Okay, so we shouldn't have to go to college to watch people's kids. Should poor people be allowed to be doctors? Should poor people have an opportunity to be doctors, Robbie? Yes, they can. College should be should be affordable, and I support lowering tuition rates. Okay, so if, for people, if you but, want if you want doctors, to is, have, there's a credentialing system that has forced everyone to buy into this entire scam my, that needs to be dismantled, I, I, I and agree. that is the problem. Agree, the problem Robbie. is not people need to pay back the I things agree, they agreed I to agree pay. I agree that that exists, but taking marginal cases on the borders that have nothing to do with the overwhelming crisis where poor people, most jobs that require credentialing do need credentialing. Probably there's too much credentialing in the doc I, medical field. I, I think that that's uh, true too. It could believe. be shorter and cheaper for sure. But sitting here and pretending like it's these marginal cases that are the cause of the structural issue does nothing but give people an excuse to do nothing to actually change the system. It blames individuals instead of blaming systems and the people who are exploiting folks. So I would like to see a lot of anger directed at Navient and predatory lenders and the people who set up this cockamamie system and not at individuals who sometimes make bad decisions, but shouldn't well, be abandoned by their government as a consequence. Okay. We should direct it at the Navi type companies that are engaged in fraud and scam and our legislators on both sides of the political aisle who refuse to fix this problem. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, I agree. All right, okay. we got there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we, pro we were, it was promised to be a, a heated, contentious one, and we got there. So more rising after this. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the new GQ cover star. Titled AOC's Fight for the Future, Inside the Issue, the New York uh, representative opens up about rumors she could run for president in 2024 or 2028. Quote, I hold two contradictory things at the same time. One is just the relentless belief that anything is possible, but at the same time, my experience here has given me a front row seat to how deeply and unconsciously, as well as consciously, so many people in this country hate women, and they hate women of color. People ask me questions about the future, and realistically, I can't even tell you if I'm going to be alive in September, and that weighs very heavily on me. And it's not just the right wing, misogyny transcends political ideology, left, right, center. 
This grip of patriarchy affects all of us, not just women, men, as I mentioned before, but also ideologically, there's an extraordinary lack of self-awareness in so many places. And so those are two very conflicting things. I admit, I, I admit to sometimes believing that I live in a country that would never let that happen. Hmm. Joining us now to weigh in is host of the Savvy Sabs podcast and co-host of the Revolutionary Blackout Network, Sabrina Salvati. Welcome to Rising. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, great to have you here. So, AOC for president, what are your thoughts? I would not vote for AOC for president. And it's it's not so much about, uh, I would say, her political ideology, because I came out of the Bernie Sanders movement. I heavily supported AOC when she ran uh, the first time. My issue with AOC is I feel like she wants to be more of a celebrity and less of a politician. I would really like to see her organize with people on the ground. I feel like she has a large following. We could use that support, those of us who are organizing on the ground. And what I've seen from her, it seems like she just wants to go along with what the corporate Democrats in DC want. She's going along with people like Nancy Pelosi. Uh, we saw the switch from when she first entered Congress and she was protesting outside of Nancy Pelosi's office. And then she went from that to calling Pelosi mama bear. So it's very clear to me, I think she wants to be a career politician, which is what she said that she would actually go against. When she first started running, she said she didn't care if she was a one-term congressperson. And obviously I don't think that's true today. So I think that the problem that I have with AOC is I don't feel like she's actually fighting for these progressive issues the way that she said that she would. And I feel like she's starting to use identity politics as an excuse for people not to support her if she were to run for president. So I think that's such an important point that so many leftists, and this might not be common knowledge outside of you know leftist circles, are frustrated with AOC because they believed in her so much in the beginning because she demonstrated some willingness to engage in the sorts of adversarial politics that she was elected to pursue. You know, the Justice Democrats who ran all of these progressive candidates, many of which were successful, AOC the most successful among them, were explicitly supposed to be highlighting the contrast between what the people wanted and what the Democratic Party would deliver, and folks have felt over time, I think you very accurately described, um, how they felt that she has increasingly fallen in line. I mean, what do you make of her choice to kind of ascribe criticism of her kind of solely to misogyny or these other kinds of um, uh, external biases as opposed to her behavior in Congress? I think some of this, there's there's some truth to this, the point that yes, uh, is there misogyny in this country? Absolutely. But I think she's not looking at the big picture here. If we were to look back at the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton received the majority of votes. So the majority of American voters voted for the female candidate. If we want to bring the, the color aspect into this as well, Barack Obama won two election cycles in a row. So I think if we did not have those examples to point to, I think maybe she would have some type of a point here, but I, I would point to someone in reference to a woman of color as someone like Michelle Obama. If Michelle Obama were to to run, I believe that she would win. And I'm, I'm not a fan of, 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 of Obama or Michelle Obama, but I believe that she would actually win. So I think that AOC needs to look at some of the things that she's done and realize there's a reason why people are particularly criticizing her. Uh, I wish she put more of her time 
fighting for people in her district and I've spoken to them and she's not fighting for them. I wish she put more of her time and focus into doing some of these actions on the ground, which she said that she would do instead of spending most of her time being a career politician and a celebrity. Yeah, I'm not on the left, but even I can see examples where Democratic candidates or progressive candidates who don't succeed, like Elizabeth Warren, very much turning to the reason I didn't get it or the reason that you know more people were still favorable to Bernie instead of me was for reasons of sexism and misogyny and so on. And yeah, AOC used a lot of strong language in this interview. So the comment about you know not being certain that she was going to be alive, she's in the article. Uh, she says she wasn't talking about her own her marriage she, uh, to a white man. She wasn't positive that an intercultural, interracial relationship would be the right uh, fit for her. I, I mean, that, that's, uh, it's, I think, generally considered to be a good thing that uh, support for interracial marriage rising, but not necessarily among AOC. Um, it, it is really, uh, it, like you said, a, a heavy identity politics language. Yes, I agree. I think that she may not realize she's making herself come across like a victim. And I felt like that that interview with GQ, it was depressing. That's not inspiring. Mm. That's not what young people want to hear. The people who supported AOC, especially people who donated a lot of money to AOC, they don't want to hear those things. And we're not saying that you can't talk about the challenges I think that you are facing, like as a progressive in DC. We're not saying you can't talk about that, but look, I'm in an interracial relationship. Yeah, there are challenges that come across with that. Deal with it. Like, I'm sorry, but you can't just blame everything that's that's happening to you, every bad thing that's happening to you on identity politics. So I think that if AOC wants to run for president, I think that she first has to be able to handle these situations that she's going through now. And I don't feel like she's doing a good job at doing that. And she's going to have even more pressure if you run for president. Tabby, do you think that AOC could win despite the skepticism that exists in, I would say, about half of the left at this point? And if not, do you think it's still possible for her to rehabilitate herself at this point? I think in order for her to win, she would have to do one or two things. She would either have to pander more so to the corporate Democrats. She would have to win over liberals. And I say that because some of us have, as leftists have left this. We've left the Bernie movement. Mm. We're done with the two-party system. So good luck getting us on board. And I think the other option is, yeah, she could redeem herself, but I think that that would hurt her position in D.C. right now. That's the problem she's going to run into. Everyone who has been there who has really tried, I think, to push back, a uh, perfect example is Cynthia McKinney, they have pushed them out. They're not going to let politicians stay there that actually are going to fight for the people and push back against the, the corporate Democrats. They're not going to let the anti-war voices really stay there in that party either. So that's what she's going to run into. So the question she has to ask herself, does she really want to fight or does she want to be a career politician? Yeah, and you bringing up the anti-war point is, is so apt because this is someone who, on paper at least, is like a progressive, is a progressive anti-war Democrat being interviewed for, you know, a major uh, magazine with the, that has an audience that maybe is, you know, across the board and, and maybe not explicitly progressive, but liberal. Talk to them about the Ukraine war. Talk to them, about, you know, this is a time to say something about how, you know, wrong this is and how there should be different policy. And, of course, it's silence, and it generally has been from even, even the supposedly left members of, uh, of Congress on this issue. Not, not universally silenced, but I think not, not nearly as much talking about it as uh, those of us who oppose what's going on would like to see. So anyway, thank you so much, uh, Sabrina, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much.
and we'll have more rising in just a minute. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and White House medical advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci engaged in a heated debate on Wednesday at the monkeypox virus Senate hearing. Here is a clip from the exchange. Uh, but she's had the flu for 14 days. Should she get a flu shot? Well, no. If she got the flu for 14 days, she's as protected as anybody can be because the best vaccination is to get infected yourself. And so she if, not she get it? if she really has the flu, if she really has the flu, she definitely doesn't need a flu vaccine. Next, if she really has the flu. She right. should not get it again. No, she doesn't need it because the, it's, the be, it's the most potent vaccination is getting infected yourself. Now, of course, to be clear, that clip wasn't actually about monkeypox, but rather about comments that Dr. Fauci made in 2004 regarding the flu vaccine and whether people should, get still, uh, should still get their shot post-infection. So in this latest standoff, Paul challenged Fauci about why his previous comments seemed to contradict official guidance about COVID-19, which included urging parents to vaccinate their children, even if they've already had coronavirus. Here's a little more from that exchange. We wonder you know, why you seem to really embrace basic immunology back in 2004 and how you or why you seem to reject it now? Well, <clears throat> I don't uh, reject basic immunology, Senator, and I have never denied that there is importance of the protection following infection. However, as we have said many times and as has been validated by the authorization of the, by the FDA through their committee and the recommendation by the CDC through their committee that a vaccination following infection gives an added extra boost. And that film that you showed is really taken out of context. I believe that was when someone called in who had had a reaction to a vaccine and asked me through a telephone in the interview if they should get vaccinated again. So it was in the context of someone who had a reaction. And as a matter of fact, Reuters fact check looked at that and said, Fauci's 2004 comments do not contradict his pandemic actually, stance. Actually, words don't lie. So interesting exchange. Fauci saying that he was specifically recommending that for someone who'd had an adverse reaction to a vaccine mm -hmm. and almost, I think, reassuring them that, but since you've had, now that you've had the flu, that's like getting vaccinated. Um, but I do take Rand Paul's comment that, and this is generally true, that we don't, when we talk about, or when the, or when the CDC talks about, when the medical advisors talk about how protected you are from COVID, they say, you know, have you had a booster? It, however many it, shots you've had or boosters you've had, whether you've had COVID itself should like count as one of those because it does offer protection the way those things do. And, uh, and there, in general, there's not been enough conversation about, well, have you had it? Because that's, you know, if you're saying people should get vaccinated and then people should get boosted, well, it, it's like they've been boosted if they've had it. Now, maybe they should get an additional booster beyond that, well, but that it's, it's not... Is that true? Because my understanding was, and again, I, I agree with you that there should be more conversation because I don't know. Like I'm sitting here saying my understanding is, but my, my understanding is that COVID, getting COVID gives you about a month or so of booster-esque protection that you're unlikely to reinfect. Although we did see people like, I don't know, 
Joe Biden get reinfected very quickly, and that's well, but that was a Paxlovid failure thing. Okay, but we've seen some high-profile profile picture uh, people. Even Anthony Fauci had multiple infections. But both this year. both those cases are to are different. Um, it, the Paxlovid rebound thing, where so my somebody I I, I know who's a, a Ron Bailey who writes for us at Reason Magazine. His theory is if you take it, some people who takes take Paxlovid. Um, it packs if it does such an effective job at shutting down the infection, you don't develop antibodies. So then when they finish the course of Paxlovid, it just like hmm. it comes. It's not like you're getting infected again. It's your body sure. hasn't on its own fought it off yet. Sure, it, so it, it, you have to go through it, that. It seems to me that the issue really isn't whether or not COVID protects you. I think that's pretty much broad, broadly acknowledged. The question is whether or not it protects you for as long as a booster would protect you. And if it's worth getting the additional support of a booster, if in fact getting COVID only protects you for a month or so, and if in fact the booster protects you for longer than that. Um, so again, this does feel like one of those times when this isn't a particularly political issue. I know that because of the way that certain people in the Biden administration and the CDC have kind of wielded the idea of science as a weapon, what I'm about to say, is stigmatized now, but at the end of the day, I really do just, I want to know the science on this. Well, I, I don't think they're even claiming that, that the booster protects you for longer than having just had a prior infection does, because in fact, they're not claiming that the booster or the vaccine at all uh, will prevent, they, like they just don't make that claim now that it even prevents you from getting, uh, from catching the illness. It. Now, our best guess, it seems like it probably does give you maybe some protection yeah, for a I little thought, while, but it's not that... saying that. It's just saying that when you, if and when you do get it, you will have less, uh, you, you have much less likely of experiencing severe disease. So That's the what, only claim being made the, by it right now. The, this booster is the first new COVID yeah. intervention that is actually tailored to, to the variants that are out now. And again, I think that part of it, it's nobody's fault, but until the thing is out there and we start to right. observe what, how they, it works They literally why, don't know because they didn't have time to test it on tons right. of these. So we will right. find out in time we'll how out. effective it actually is. But I thought that the hope was that because this one is actually tailored to the variant, the likes of which we haven't had since the very first round of shots, right. that it will have a more protective effect. The way that it seemed like the vaccines did have more of a protective effect in the summer of 2020. 2021 than they than they have had. Yeah, they were well. The, right then Delta was, but that's when right. Delta was. Then Delta came up in, and, then and it was exactly, yeah. exactly. We don't really know. It seems like both the prior infection and various boosters offer you. There's a window of actual uh, protection, maybe mm -hmm. from transmission. We don't exactly know how big that window window is. It could depend on the strain. It could depend on the individual. Yeah. It could be very small. It could, for some people, just happen to be larger. Um, and but and then there is also in both cases protection, uh, greater protection against severe disease. So it's they're kind of comparable things. Now, obviously, to get the protection of uh, of, of prior infection, you have to actually get COVID, right. which is the very thing you're trying to avoid. Right. So it's not it's not like not exactly like the same thing. But what Rand Paul really does harp on in these hearings, I think correctly, is that uh, is that especially if you're trying to vac you know resistant people. Uh, people who are resistant to getting vaccinated, you know, if, if they've not been vaccinated and they've not had COVID uh, and, and they're older, they, particularly if they fall into a risk category, it really is important for them to get vaccinated. Uh, and you could make that case to them. But if they already have the antibodies, they might have some protection, quite good protection against severe disease. And is Fauci arguing against that? 
Well, then they get into it. Yeah, Rand the Paul claim doesn't is think that he emphasizes that yeah. enough. Well, but then when we're talking about kids, because we're because we're requiring it in some in DC schools again, we have talked. Don't want to talk about this again, again, but they're going to require even kids, young kids, um, or high school age kids, I forget exactly what the age cutoff is, but to return to school this fall, you're required to be vaccinated. But something like 70, 80%, maybe more, we don't know, somewhere around there, have already had COVID and thus have the protection, equivalent protection of like one layer of shots. And it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it doesn't make any epidemiological sense anyway, because it it's not really doing anything for cases to require those, but that uh, and and uh, you know Fauci will say, well, I'm not necessarily, I'm not recommending that, but uh, maybe he could speak out against that. Maybe he could say, do not mandate this for kids. It's worse for their health to not have them in schools, especially when, especially when most of them have the vaccine equivalent protection. Maybe they sh it should be up to them to get vaccinated if they want to, but they have vaccine equivalent protection. You're talking about just the D.C. school mandate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, again. Very happily, from your camp's perspective, that's the only mandate that seems to be left in schools around the country. And Dr. Fauci will no longer be around very shortly uh, in the position that he's in to be uh, the focal point for all of these kind of criticisms. So I'm curious to see how politically relevant these kind of concerns continue to be a few months from now, uh, as it does seem like there's growing consensus about what needs to be done because of folks like you have, who have really been ringing the alarm bell, I think rightly so, about some of the inconsistencies that have come down the pike. Well, and, and you know, many on the left have, have, got, have grown tired of the kind of endless mandate regime and how that actually conflicts with a kind of my body, my choice um, ethos. And I think, I think everyone is kind of coming around to the, you know, the DC might be like this almost virtually the literal last holdout for some of these incredibly strict uh, mandates or mandates on populations for, for which it makes absolutely no sense to have one. So glad we're, hopefully we don't have to talk about it very much anymore, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. A dream. <laughs> More rising right after this. In his newest book, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness, Tom Hartman breaks down how the United States transformed into a neoliberal oligarchy and why it's time to correct course. Author and host of the Tom Hartman program, Tom Hartman joins us now. Welcome back to Rising, Tom. Good morning. It's great to be here with you both. Thank you so much. For so me. my first question is this: um, It's not—it's called neoliberalism, right? Like there's a, the the liberals um, definitely played a role in this. Talk to us about like why and how that happened. How did that? How did the Democrats end up embracing so much of this at the same time as 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 the Republicans? Well, there's kind of two pieces to this. First of all, the European definition of the word liberal is different than the American definition. And, and the guys who invented neoliberalism were, with the exception of Milton Friedman, all Europeans. And so um, in Europe, when you say liberal, what you're really talking about would in the United States be described as libertarian or conservative economics or Reaganomics or trickle-down economics. And they wanted this to be the new and improved version of that, thus neoliberalism. But you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, it, it, was, it was the Reagan revolution that, that imposed neoliberalism on the United States. But Bill Clinton was, you know, just fine with that. In fact, he doubled down on it by signing NAFTA and declaring the end of the era of big government and the end of welfare as we know it. And so we've had 40 years of uh, neoliberalism brought to us by both Democrats and Republicans. And now for the first time in those 40 years, we've got a president, Joe Biden, who's actually pushing back on neoliberalism, pushing back against it, which is really a good thing. 
Uh, I disagree. So, how how would you overcome my skepticism <laughs> that uh, that you know un unleashing market forces to rage uh, to, to uh, raise you know living standards and lower the price of goods and everything? That's you're saying that's actually been a bad thing, and we need more government management of the economy. Uh, is that what you mean by liberalism? Because the word neoliberalism gets used by a lot of people on the left in like a boogeyman context to refer to absolutely everything they don't like. I think even, even you would agree that it's a very you know, broad painting being assembled by that word. So what do you mean by it and, and, and what am I missing for why it's been so disastrous? Well, first of all, neoliberalism doesn't unleash market forces. Uh, market forces are like football, right? It's a game that people play with money. And if you play that game with decent rules, just like you know the NFL does with football, then the game works for everybody. And that's what we had before neoliberalism. That, that was basically Keynesian economics. We went from having fewer than 10% of Americans in the middle class in 1930 to 65% of Americans in the middle class in 1980 when Reagan came into office. It's now down to 45% because the, quote, government interference that actually produces a middle class. A middle class is not the normal state of capitalism. Read Dickens, that's the normal state of capitalism. And that was America in the, in the census of 1900, the average American income in today's dollars, family income is $4,300. 95% of Americans were poor, dirt poor in 1900. And so what neoliberalism has done with so-called free trade, which is basically let corporations go anywhere in the world for, for the cheapest labor possible, with by radically cutting taxes on the on the morbidly rich, which allows them to accumulate massive amounts of wealth in that they principally invest in instruments that do not churn, that do not perpetuate the economy, that do not stimulate the economy. What we've seen is a collapse of the middle. Oh, and 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 uh, you know the neoliberal battle belief that labor unions are an inappropriate interference in the so-called free market, and, uh, when in fact all they do is balance somewhat. The, real, the power relationship between employers and employed, um, these neoliberal principles have gutted the American middle class. And frankly, uh, you, know, I'm, I, uh, you know, Biden and many uh, progressive Democrats in particular are calling for an end to it. I think it's a good thing. So here's my question. Um, um, I totally agree with you about everything you just said. Um, I don't think that the middle class is, an, unlike Robbie, I don't think it's a naturally occurring phenomenon of the market. I think that the shift from a market, a market economy based on you know production to one based on finance has been disastrous for the middle class. I, I, I totally agree with everything you're saying, offshoring, NAFTA. My question is, is how come you don't give President Trump any credit? He was the one who got rid of NAFTA. He started a trade war with China, put tariffs on all this stuff. He really jump-started a return of manufacturing. Um, you know, the, to me, he really was the first one to take an ax to the, to the sort of handshake agreement between both parties that enforced this neoliberal order since 1980, like you said. Well, how come he doesn't get any credit in this story? Well, actually, in my book, he does. Um, and, oh. and I think it's an important point. I mean, I wouldn't say he was the first to take an ax to it. Bernie Sanders has been singing this song since yes. 1980. <laughs> yes. And along with a lot of Democrats, Sherrod Brown, for example, has been in the Senate for a yep. long, long time, and he's been arguing against trade deals and things like that. But, but yeah, uh, Donald Trump, and this is one of the reasons why he became president in 2016, is he was the first um, Republican or Democrat since the Reagan Revolution to come out and openly challenge neoliberalism. 
Uh, now, a lot of what he was saying were just, you know, flat out lies. You know, he said he was going to raise taxes on the rich so that all his friends would hate him. Instead, he gave them a two trillion dollar you know, gift. Uh, he said he was going to empower the labor unions. And, and in, instead, he, he had, you know, his Department of Labor further gutted union rights. Uh, you know, and a lot of the stuff that he said when he challenged neoliberalism just turned out to be BS. And the tariffs that he did were done by executive action rather than by Congress. So they were largely symbolic. And, and mm -hmm. you know, most businesses in China certainly realized that they were largely meaningless, but they sold well. And, and I think that that's, as you point out, that's proof that Americans, even Republicans, are sick and tired of neoliberalism. And, and you know, the big challenge that Joe Biden has right now, as he calls it out, is that you, there's still a bunch of Democrats that are promoting neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. Joe Manchin inserted a provision into both the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act, requiring every penny that the government spends on those two pieces of legislation to go through the hands of a for-profit corporation, which is pure neoliberalism. And that was brought to you by a Democrat. So, you know, there's a struggle within the Democratic Party around this right now, as there is in the Republican Party. You, you referred to free trade kind of derisively a minute ago. I, my understanding is that, you know, upward like 95% or more of economists, not just neoliberal economists, but even under like a Keynesian worldview, that free trade is absolutely beneficial, mutually beneficial, uh, you know, raises, lowers the cost of goods and therefore makes everyone more prosperous, allows for middle class. There was no middle class, you know, prior to capitalism and free trade and some of those things coming along in the last, you know, 200 or so years. You know, if, if you say, right, we, we can, you could still have a social safety net or think there should be more of a social safety net, you know, without thinking that the, the government needs to manage trade or, or prevent free trade or something like that. I mean, the consensus is, is, is it not true that the economic consensus around those policies being good, like it's, it's more robust than the consensus around climate change being real or a number of things, or it's just as, just as, as strong. Like, are, are all those experts getting that wrong? Well, first of all, it's not all those experts. And and if we just, you know, did all this based on polling, we'd probably still have slavery. But, uh, you know, because there was a time when all the authorities in America were saying, gee, that's the way it should be. That's the way it's been for 10,000 years. Um, but, but bottom line, uh, I agree with you that trade is a good thing. Trade brings lots of benefits to all kinds of countries. And that's why in 1791, George Washington reached out to Alexander Hamilton, his treasury secretary, and said, come up with a plan to build an industrial America. And Hamilton in 1793 laid this before Congress, which adopted virtually all of it, his 11-point plan. It was called the American Plan. And that plan included tariffs on imported manufactured goods to give a, a, a price advantage to domestic manufacturing companies supports, price supports, encouragement for the export of manufactured goods, um, uh, subsidies to industries that Hamilton and, and George Washington believed were essential for America, particularly defense industries, but also tech, tech, what back then it was called technology. And that American plan stood until 1981, and it built the, the, the most vibrant economy in the history of the world. And, uh, and in part, it, it built the middle class as well. In 1988, I spent November of 88 in China, and, and at that time, the Chinese government was in Beijing. I was, uh, I was staying. And at that time, the Chinese government was debating, you know, the, the Maoism has collapsed. What do we do next? And there was one faction that said we should follow America and do neoliberalism. And there was another faction that said, no, um, we, should, uh, we should follow what America first did, 
with the Alexander Hamilton American plan and adopt that and have a protectionist trade uh, policy. In other words, we'll aggressively engage in trade, but we'll do so on our terms rather than the terms of whoever's the biggest player in the world. And so China rejected neoliberalism pretty much at the same time that Russia was embracing it. And neoliberalism always, and, and even the free trade associated, the so-called free trade associated with it, it doesn't mean it's free. All it means is that the largest players get to determine the rules. Um, and the, the smaller players typically get squashed. We have, as a consequence of the so-called free trade, we have lost 60,000 factories and over 10 million jobs in the United States. And those are federal government numbers. And, and where did those go? Most of them went to China. China has, since they adopted the American plan, it's been 30 years now, they have had the fastest growing economy in the history of the world. The middle class of China is larger than the entire population of the United States. And it's not because of free trade, it's because of protectionist trade that China engages in. And we have seen a collapse here as a result of so-called free trade. I, I could not agree with you more. I, I think it so enrages me to see these, you know, these good working class jobs that provided millions of Americans with a middle class standard of living get shipped off to another country and build up their middle class. I guess my question to you is, so how do we turn the boat around? Like what 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 do you hope to see um, in the coming decades, do you think, do you support the CHIPS Act as building another fab a good idea? Do you see, um, you know, the return of manufacturing as something that is a, a potential reality? I mean, do you see the return of unions as a potential reality? 6% of Americans employed in the private sector are in unions now. I mean, that that to me seems like a really, like that we need something else because that's not coming back. Where do you stand on this? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And, and uh, you know, when Reagan came into office, a third of America was unionized, which meant another third of America had the equivalent of a good union job because the unions right. provide local <laughs> wage for so Two thirds of America had good jobs. We had over 60, 65 percent of us were in the middle class. Um, now, as I, as I mentioned earlier, that's dropped by 20 percent. It's fewer than 45 percent of Americans are in the middle class because only six percent of the private workforce is unionized. And yeah, I, I'm, I am seeing, you know, and, and particular with the, the generation coming up, the Zoomers um, and, and, and the millennials, uh, you know, people are waking the hell up and going, hey, wait a minute, we had a system here that worked and it worked for, you know, several generations. And uh, this experiment has failed. Let's, let's dump it in the trash bin of history. So yeah, I, I, I totally see that happening and, and, and hope that you know, it picks up steam because you know, we, we have empirical evidence. We can look at the last you know, 80, 90, 100 years and just see what has worked and what hasn't. But the reason, the reason we can't keep factory jobs here is because it's, it's, uh, it's cheaper to, to offshore them in part because of the regulations and things that, union, that labor has advocated for that have made it too hard for business to be done here, so they went elsewhere. So I, I, like how, how, do you, you know, how do you handle that? If you make it too costly to do business here, people will do business elsewhere, and then we're stuck in this reality. Like Labor wants to have it both ways. They want all the sorts of cushy protections, and then, but then also to have an industrialized country. Like You can't have both. Are you suggesting that America should say, okay, we're going to take a part of this country, let's say Louisiana, and turn it into a prison camp and force people to work for nothing, and we're going to allow child labor here in order to compete with China? I, I didn't say anything about forcing anyone to work. You said you want the jobs here. Let them be here then. Get rid of some of those restrictions that make it, that force companies to move them uh, overseas. 
Well, those restrictions are, are you know, things that inhibit child labor and forced labor. <laughs> yeah, we should Why do you want to get rid of those? I, I do not want to get rid of restrictions on forced labor. I, but you're saying you want to bring the jobs back. But, it, it, no, but no one on the left why. is willing to do the things we need to do to bring those jobs back, which is actually make it easier to, to build factories and have factory jobs here. I, I don't think that's ever going to happen, by the way, because I don't see any of the, the regulations that need to be gotten rid of to have that happen ever happening. So we're going to have the jobs overseas. What's that? Name one. Name one regulation that is causing manufacturers to go to China rather than manufacture here in the United States, outside of the requirement that labor has to be treated fairly here in the United States. I mean, Name one. A minimum wage, environmental impact policies that prevent you from building anything. Um, right, so you want a dirty environment and you want an impoverished workforce. I, you know, I don't think Americans want that. <laughs> but, but, they, but you were saying, I mean, the left was that you want these jobs here, and I'm saying that's what it would take to do it. So if we're, if we're not no, willing we, to do that, we're going to have those jobs no, elsewhere. we should just do the same thing China does. We should, we should make it difficult to import manufactured goods, and we should make it easy to export manufactured goods. This is what we did prior to 1980, and it worked. And it's what China's been doing since 1993, and it's worked fabulously for them. It was actually started, this whole idea was originated in, in England in the 1500s by King Henry VII. It was called the Tudor Plan. And when Alexander Hamilton came up with the American plan, he simply cloned the Tudor Plan, which had built um, England into the largest industrial power in the world. And like I said, in 30 years, it's now turned China into the largest industrial power. Next year, their GDP is going to surpass ours. But all of the, the, both those plans did involve a much greater, li, uh, like a liberalizing force. I, I, I think we're getting tripped no, up no, maybe no, a little bit. Government interference in the marketplace. Well, but it was, it was less government interference in the marketplace than they had before, right? It was a, it was a, it was a directional of less government in the market. China has been growing like a weed because they have significant government involvement in the marketplace. The government protects domestic manufacturers and promotes export of manufactured goods. We abandoned that in the United States in, the United States in 1981. With, with neoliberalism, and then Clinton doubled down on it with NAFTA and the WTO, and, and then uh, George W. Bush tripled down on that by granting China in 2001 most favored nation status. And the results of those things have been, like I said, you, you, you walk into a Walmart and find one product made in America. That's not how it should be. Sam Walton's slogan back in the 80s, they had big banners on Walmarts, 100% made in the USA. That's long gone. This is the result of government policy. It's not magic. It's not the marketplace. I don't know. Why, why should we care if it's made in America or elsewhere as long as it's, afford it's more affordable because it's made elsewhere because of the policies here? But I, we're, go we're going around in circles. Because we'd rather live in a wealthy nation than an impoverished nation. I'd rather live a, on, a wealthy, on a wealthy planet. The, the, like the, we want to make everyone better off, right? Well, I'm, I'm an American citizen, so I'm, and, and I can influence America. I'm not a Chinese citizen, and I can't influence China. So I'm, I'm speaking of America, and I'd like to have a wealthy America again, or at least a, a wealthy American middle class. I mean, we now have two men who control more wealth than the bottom half of America. That's nuts. Well, Tom Hartman, thank you so much for joining us. The book is The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. We appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Stay tuned for more Rising right after this.